NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. We start this evening with this. Get caught in a hot mess? Call the Don Bonna Law. That is an ad for the legal services of the new Florida lawyer who is representing former President Trump's alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And just from the layman's perspective here, yes, it sure seems like Mr. Nauta is caught in a hot mess. Today in Miami, Mr. Nauta finally pleaded not guilty to the charges that he schemed with Trump to hide classified documents at Trump's Florida Beach Club and then attempted to cover it all up. For weeks now, Mr. Nauta has been delaying this arraignment, claiming that he has had trouble finding local Florida representation. And today, well, we learned he has found that local representation, the Don Bonna Law. Now, we don't know for sure who's paying for Mr. Nauta's new local counsel, but the other lawyer, the non-local counsel that Mr. Nauta has had for a while, who, by the way, was also in court today and entered Mr. Nauta's plea, that lawyer is an attorney named Stanley Woodward. And we know from public disclosures that Mr. Woodward's law firm is being paid by former President Trump's political action committee, Save America. That little tidbit matters because if the past is prologue here, then the lawyers and who pays for the lawyers can make a world of a difference when it comes to actually getting at the truth. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Remember Cassidy Hutchinson? She was a former top aide to Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And Cassidy Hutchinson was one of the star witnesses for the January 6th investigation. She described how President Trump not only knew the crowd gathering to hear his speech at the Ellipse on January 6th had weapons, she testified that Trump also didn't want security to take those weapons away. She was in the West Wing. She was a firsthand witness to many of the key scenes leading up to and on January 6th itself. But Cassidy Hutchinson wasn't always completely transparent with the January 6th committee. Early on in the House investigation, Hutchinson was represented by a lawyer named Stefan Passantino. And Passantino's law firm was paid by, take a guess, they were ta- paid by Trump's political action committee, Save America. The same organization that has paid the law firm of the lawyer representing Mr. Nauta. And because of the extensive testimony Ms. Hutchinson gave to the House, we know exactly what kind of legal representation Trump world was paying for. Mr. Passantino, the lawyer, told Hutchinson things like, we want you to focus on protecting the president. We all know you're loyal. He gave her legal advice like, the less you remember, the better while instructing her not to look at calendars or to look at timelines or do anything that could jog her memory. That is the kind of legal advice that Trump world was paying for. It has a distinctly pro-Trump bent, doesn't it? But because of how detailed Mrs. Hutchinson's testimony was, ultimately, in the end, we know the exact moment she decided to flip. Around June of last year, Hutchinson believed the House investigation might hold her in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with them. 
This was the advice that her lawyer, again, paid for by a Trump PAC. This is the advice he gave her at the time. There's a small element of risk to refusing to cooperate, but I think it's the best move for you. Do you agree? Turns out Cassidy Hutchinson did not agree. She described that moment explicitly as her breaking point, saying that it was then she knew she needed to sever her attorney-client relationship with or without a new attorney. Now, we are recounting all of this because Cassidy Hutchinson and Walt Nauta are strikingly similar figures. Hutchinson was a Trump loyalist. She was still a top White House aide as of January 2021, which is telling in its own right. Walt Nauta is a Navy veteran and former White House valet who has done everything from fetch Trump his Diet Cokes to move his very important boxes around Mar-a-Lago. And since Trump and Nauta were co-indicted, an unusual arrangement, they have been spotted together over and over again, sort of attached at the hip. Remember, both Hutchinson's and Nauta's legal fees were at least initially paid for by Trump's Save America PAC. And so far, Walt Nauta appears to have taken a similar legal strategy to the one Ms. Hutchinson started with. He is stonewalling investigators. For example, one of the crimes Mr. Nauta is charged with is lying to investigators. The indictment lays it out like this. In May of last year, the FBI asked Nauta if he was aware of any boxes being brought to Trump's home. Nauta answered no. When asked if he had any information at all about where those boxes were kept, Nauta responded, I wish I could tell you, I don't know. I don't. I honestly just don't know. It is now, of course, very public knowledge that Jack Smith's office knows that this is a lie and they can prove it. They have security camera footage of Mr. Nauta moving the boxes before making those statements. They have text messages of Mr. Nauta's where he talks about moving those boxes again before making those statements. But still today, Walt Nauta pleaded not guilty. I don't know if that was his own idea or it was the legal advice he's getting, but it is certainly a bold decision here. And the very live question now is, how long will Walt Nauta stick with that decision? Will he make it all the way to a trial with a lawyer paid for by Donald Trump? Joining us now to discuss is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, MSNBC legal analyst Barbara McQuaid, as well as David Aaron, former federal prosecutor and intelligence attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you both for being here. Barb, I, I have a good set of theories about why Walt Nauta might be inclined to flip on Trump. But why? I mean, entertain the idea for a moment that he doesn't flip on Trump. What are the incentives to staying in the good graces of Trump world at this point. Well, Alex, pleading guilty is a very personal decision, and sometimes it takes people up until the very end to be convinced uh, that, that their guilt can be proved. But I can imagine when you're in the position of someone like Walt Nada and you're working for Donald Trump, perhaps there is a motivation of loyalty. Perhaps there is a thought that ultimately any prison time would be uh, a small portion of the rest of your life, uh, and the rest of your life you could instead be rewarded by Donald Trump. So there may be financial reasons, there may be fear reasons, and there may be loyalty reasons. Uh, I don't think it's over. He can cooperate up until the time the case goes to trial. 
But I do think that he's probably blown his best chance, which would have been a pre-indictment plea. If he is to plead guilty now, I think he'd have to plead guilty as charged uh, and then hope for leniency from the judge in exchange for cooperation. But I think once we've gotten to this point, I don't think the government needs his cooperation to secure a conviction of Donald Trump. Dave, does it surprise you that Walt Nauta, who, again, you know, his move moving of the boxes is part of the affidavit for the search warrant, he's been sort of at the ground zero of this criminal indictment from day one. Does it surprise you that he is pleading not guilty here? It doesn't surprise me at all. Most defendants plead not guilty at their arraignment. And, you know, as Barbara said, negotiations can proceed from there. Um, I do think in this case, um, as the days have gone by, his uh, usefulness to a potential uh, as a potential cooperator is probably declining steadily. I think if he was going to make the decision to cooperate, he's about a year late. Barb, what do you think in terms of the peril he faces, legally speaking, given the fact that he's the only other person named in the first at least initial criminal indictment from the DOJ? What 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 are the potential consequences here if he is found guilty? The penalties can be steep. The false statements charge is penalized by up to five years in prison, but it's the uh, conspiracy to obstruct justice that is the one that's penalized up to 20 years in prison. Now, you know, sentencing guidelines usually bring that number to something lower. And I can imagine if I were the lawyer for Walt Nauta, I would argue that he should get a reduction in his sentence as a minimal participant. He was just taking orders from Donald Trump, even if he is guilty, to minimize. But nonetheless, I think he's looking at years in prison. And so there is still an incentive to plead guilty in an effort to reduce that number. Yeah, years in prison is not nothing. Um, Dave, in terms of the legal representation that he now has, Stanley Woodward and the new local counsel, Miss um, Dadan, she is not a former federal prosecutor. Do you think that has any effect on her inclination to strike a deal with the government if that is even in the cards in the future? I don't think so. I, th I think uh, there are a lot of excellent defense attorneys who have been public defenders, who have not been prosecutors. Um, several of them uh, have cleaned my clock, certainly in the past. Um, I, I think she's going to, you know, like any defense attorney, she's going to assess the case uh, against her client, see what his options are, uh, see what the most advantageous way forward is and advise her client. But again, you know, these decisions at the end of the day are her clients. She can give the advice uh, as much as she wants and be as persuasive as she wants with her client. But ultimately, um, her client has to decide what his best way forward yeah, is. Yeah, and I'm not meaning to suggest that she's other, anything other than a capable lawyer, but I just mean, Dave, in terms of her ability, I mean, the negotiations between former federal prosecutors and current federal prosecutors, at least colloquially, anecdotally speaking, seem to be more of a pro forma exercise than they would necessarily be with someone who hadn't had that experience. Is there any validity to that? There's certainly a common language that a former prosecutor and a current prosecutor will have. Um, but in my experience, those relationships, uh, they're really much more on a case by case basis. And you might be up against a former prosecutor who's going to yell at you all day and say that, you know, he knows how to do your job better than you do. That's not going to be a good relationship. Um, and I've had excellent relationships with, you know, died in the wool defense attorneys who would never think of prosecuting somebody. So, you know, she spent a lot of time as a public defender dealing with prosecutors. I think she probably knows um, how to engage. Also, it's it's important to remember she's not alone here. Um, she has at least one team member now. I expect that team will grow. Um, there will be plenty of opportunity for the personalities to work themselves out. Um, Barb, just to be clear, I mean, if there is any evidence that uh, 
Walt Nauta's counsel has not had Walt Nauta's best interests as the central concern, that can be caused to vacate the case, right? The government has a vested interest in making sure that he has adequate legal counsel in all of this. Is that right? Yes. And so, you know, it is permissible for someone else to pay your legal fees, but the duty of loyalty for a lawyer is to the client. And that is an ethical duty that every lawyer has. So regardless of who's paying the bills, you're supposed to act in the best interest of the client at all times. Now, in that Cassidy Hutchinson case that you cited earlier, we see how those incentives can sometimes cause people to uh, do things differently than perhaps uh, the, the uh, ethics rules would suggest. So I think that for prosecutors, you know, they're very reluctant to get in between a lawyer and her client uh, to do anything to disrupt that relationship. But if they were to get wind that something was amiss, what they could do is file a, a motion for a hearing with the judge for the judge to inquire directly with the client as to whether they were satisfied, Walt Nauta was satisfied with his representation. But I think it would take a lot before that could would happen and that lawyers, prosecutors uh, would would put themselves in that situation. Yeah, I mean, Dave, just based on what we know from Cassidy Hutchinson, what the advice she was giving seemed plainly not in her best interest or the interest of getting to the truth, but that's another matter. Um, and yet there was no there were no repercussions there. It seems like it's a really high bar to prove that your loyal, that your legal counsel is not acting in in your best interest, but instead potentially the interests of the person who's paying the bills, in this case, Donald Trump. It is a difficult thing to decide to come between uh, an attorney and client. And Ms. Hutchinson and Mr. Nauter in very different positions. You know, one is a witness. One was a witness before a congressional committee. Another is now a defendant. Um, they they they're in different postures. Um, there was no judge to come between uh, uh, the witness, uh, Ms. Ms. Hutchinson, and um, and uh, and the committee. Um, so she was really. A, making that decision on her own. Um, in a way, it's a good thing for Mr. Now to hear that there's a, a judge potentially to make whatever inquiry needs to be made if it comes to that. Yeah. And that would be Aileen Cannon. So <laughs> we will see how this all plays out. Barbara McQuaid, David Aaron, thank you both for joining me tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Alex. Still ahead here tonight, calling 9-11 a hoax is not enough to get you kicked out of the far-right House Freedom Caucus, but calling your fellow member names, well, that is. That's next. And as Ron DeSantis' campaign appears to, shall we say, falter, his state of Florida is dealing with malaria, as in malaria. Stay with us. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets Nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Have you met All Modern? All Modern brings you the best of modern furniture, and they deliver it for free in days. You heard that right. Days. That way, you get your sofa ASAP and can sit comfortably while figuring out your other modern must-haves. At All Modern, you'll find only the best of modern. From Scandi to mid-century, minimalist to maximalist, every piece is hand-vetted for quality by our team of experts and designed for real life. That's modern made simple. Shop now at allmodern.com.
Do you remember this moment? This was the House floor fight captured by C-SPAN's cameras between former allies and current Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. It happened just about two weeks ago. Reporters claim that during that dispute, they heard Congresswoman Greene call her colleague, Ms. Boebert, a word that rhymes with kitsch. Marjorie Taylor Greene later called that reporting impressively correct. It turns out that incident was more than just a momentary feud. State Politico reports that the House Freedom Caucus, the far right wing of the Republican conference, has voted to kick out Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. One member told Politico that tensions had been brewing over Greene's decision to side with House Republican leadership and against the far right members on issues like the debt ceiling. The member called the incident with Boebert the straw that broke the camel's back. This is the first time the Freedom Caucus has ever booted a member from its ranks. First time the camel has bucked, if you will. But they have had plenty of other opportunities. The caucus previously allowed members Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar to remain members in good standing, despite both of them attending a conference hosted by known white supremacist Nick Fuentes. Marjorie Taylor Greene has not since moderated herself in any meaningful way. After all, the fight between her and Congresswoman Boebert was over which one of them would get to bring articles of impeachment against President Biden. Still, the woman who once suggested that 9-11 was a hoax and blamed California wildfires on Jewish space lasers, that woman is now considered insufficiently radical in the eyes of House conservatives, which tells you everything you need to know about the chaos that Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy is currently swimming in. Politico reports this week that House Republicans are now ramping up their fight against the FBI and the Department of Justice, including a renewed push to defund federal law enforcement a move that not every Republican is on board with. Again, according to Politico, in a recent closed-door meeting, conservative Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado privately urged his colleagues to be careful about how they talk about Justice Department funding, adding, I'm not in favor of cutting DOJ. At the same time, some conservatives are pushing to bring articles of impeachment against Attorney General Merrick Garland in what would be the first impeachment of a cabinet official in nearly 150 years. Attorney General Garland is slated to testify before a House committee later this summer. Joining us now is Brendan Buck, former aide to House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Brendan, there was a time in American politics when people let bygones be bygones, but that does not seem to be the case when it comes to what happened during the debt ceiling fight. I, I personally am surprised that the House Freedom Caucus is still so incensed over that deal. Usually, isn't it that once a speaker gets it done, everybody can move on? That does not seem to have happened here. Well, I think maybe they moved on, but they don't forget. And I think that's yeah. where Kevin McCarthy's problem here is that they some people gave him a pass. But even the ones who you might have been surprised supported him have kind of said, well, we're going to look down to the appropriations fight, the actual spending of money later this year. And if we don't end up cutting spending much below this deal, then we're going to have a real problem. I mean, look, that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene's problem here. It's not so much that she's fighting with her her colleagues. It's that she's become an ally of the speaker. And 
she and folks at home could be excused for thinking that the Freedom Caucus exists primarily to advance conservative ideas. They're, they're conservative, to be sure, but their bigger priority is screwing with leadership. I, I've, I've seen that plenty of times. Um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene has become uh, not just an ally, but a shield from a lot of conservative criticism of, of the speaker. Uh, and I think probably in the view of the Freedom Caucus, she's become a pawn of, of the speaker. And um, at times, you know, it's not just supporting Kevin McCarthy for, for speaker, which she did. It is, it's defending things like the debt limit deal. Uh, she has at times looked like the serious one, which actually I think says a lot more about the Freedom Caucus than it does about her. She is still a conspiracy theorist. Um, but it tells you the kind of uh, challenges that Kevin McCarthy uh, is facing. They, they saw what happened and, and they haven't forgotten. They're just waiting until the next opportunity to strike. Well, I mean, it just bears mentioning that they could have scuttled the deal. They could have scuttled the debt ceiling deal if they had wanted to. Could they not have? I mean, they, they, they had enough votes to make Kevin McCarthy's life very complicated, and they didn't. And now they're angry. And in some bizarre Twilight Zone version of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene was the adult in the room who Kevin McCarthy has now lost. And to your point, how critical is she slash was she in those fights where you had to get the far right wing members of the conference on board? I mean, how much of a, a, a weapon, for lack of a better term, has he lost in the fact that she's been booted from the House Freedom Caucus? Yeah, I still think she'll be useful to him. But what ended up happening in the debt limit deal is she helped Kevin McCarthy make all of those people irrelevant. The, the, the bill passed with a huge majority. Um, you're really able to basically ignore the Freedom Caucus, and they hate that. They hate being ignored in anything that's going on. Um, and they were able to pass it without really worrying too much about that, because they did have conservative cover, not just from Marjorie Taylor Greene, but people like Jim Jordan, um, who used to be one of our biggest headaches, uh, was supporting it. And so in the aftermath of that, that's when you saw them lashing out. They shut down the House floor for a week. They started making demands. Now they're making Kevin McCarthy uh, pledge that he's going to fight for spending cuts lower than where we're in the deal, which is not going to happen. But it's really just setting him up for the fall. It's always for the next play. They're always looking down the road at ways that they can trip him up. Um, they got, I think, maybe a little bit outmaneuvered on the debt limit deal. And I think they are looking for revenge next time around. Yeah, well, they have a big appropriations fight in September when they could shut down the government, which seems almost like a foregone conclusion to all of this. But in the meantime, they're going to, what, defund the FBI and the DOJ? I mean, that seems, in a word, cuckoo. And yet, how much is this something that the GOP now actually has to consider inside the House? Look, if you've been telling your constituents for years that the DOJ is not just corrupt, but that it's targeting people like you, regular folks out in red America— Eventually, your constituents are going to expect you to do something about it. And so that's where we are now. Um, there's been so much anger built up, so many accusations made that when the time comes to fund the DOJ, people are going to demand some type of action taken. And they're, obviously, they're talking about other things like impeachment. So there may be different uh, release valves they can use for this. Um, but at some point, the, 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 the bill is going to come due with all of the promises you've made. Oversight typically works in that you search for facts and then you reach a conclusion. Here, House Republicans have reached the conclusion first. DOJ is corrupt, and now they're searching for facts to back it up and make the case. So far, to no avail. I think in the end, this is, again, just setting up Kevin McCarthy for, the fail for failure. They're not going to be able to defund DOJ. Well, the problem with all of this is if you shut it down, you do look crazy. Well, yeah, and I would also say, what does it do? I mean, the Republican Party wraps itself in the mantle of being the party of law and order and will be the party, potentially, that seeks to cut funding 
for the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigations and rallies around a candidate who may have multiple criminal, federal criminal indictments against him. I mean, the implication, is, is there not a price to pay for that among, you know, conservatives out in the country, swing voters out in the country, independents in America? Absolutely, there is. And it's a four seat majority, five seat majority. And there have been moderates who have pushed it back and say, what are we doing? This is this is crazy stuff. This has not helped me get reelected. But that's not the culture of the House Republican conference. The culture is to worry about feeding the base all the time. And they don't care about their swing district, people who put them in the majority. And so they often get overruled. I'm sure they get run over here. And the big question will be whether four or five of these moderates stand up and say, I'm not voting for this and, and push back. They usually don't fight back, but this could be an opportunity where they say enough's enough. How many times can we slip on the banana peel before the joke is on us, Brendan? I don't know. And yet Kevin McCarthy is still the speaker. Brendan Buck, former aide to House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Thanks for joining me tonight, Brendan. Great to see you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Still ahead here this evening, Florida reports two new cases of malaria today, cases people got in Florida. But Governor Ron DeSantis has so politicized public health that his government can't hire anyone for top jobs to manage public health. And as the right wing goes nuts over a baggie of cocaine found at the White House, we're going to get into the real history of drugs at the White House coming up. Stay with us. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Have you met All Modern? All Modern brings you the best of modern furniture, and they deliver it for free in days. You heard that right. Days. That way, you get your sofa ASAP and can sit comfortably while figuring out your other modern must-haves. At All Modern, you'll find only the best of modern. From Scandi to mid-century, minimalist to maximalist, every piece is hand-vetted for quality by our team of experts and designed for real life. That's modern made simple. Shop now at allmodern.com. The state of Florida has issued a mosquito alert after confirming four cases now of malaria in Sarasota County. Concerns are growing as this marks the first time we're seeing local transmission in the U.S. in two decades. Those cases are discovered in Sarasota and Manatee counties, but there is concern from health officials that it could spread. Malaria, a disease transmitted by mosquitoes, something that the United States eliminated in 1951. It is back, at least in the state of Florida. The cluster of cases in Florida, plus one case in Texas, are the first instances of locally transmitted malaria diagnosed in this country in 20 years. Now, from time to time, you might hear about someone diagnosed with malaria in the U.S. after they caught it overseas. But it seems like this cluster originated in Sarasota, Florida. It came from there, and it is spreading. Today alone, two more cases were reported in Sarasota, raising Florida's total case count to six Last week, the CDC issued a health advisory warning about these cases while assuring the public that overall, the risk of contracting malaria in the U.S. remains low for most of the country. But Florida epidemiologists are concerned because, well, Florida is not the rest of the country, which is probably evident by now. But anyway, for starters, the person at the helm of Florida's Department of Health is Dr. Joseph Ladipo, and you may remember him. 
He is the doctor Governor Ron DeSantis appointed as Florida Surgeon General in September of 2021, right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, after Dr. Latipo openly and incorrectly questioned the effectiveness of COVID vaccines. After Governor DeSantis announced his appointment, Dr. Latipo announced there is nothing special about vaccines compared to any other preventative measure. It's been treated almost like a religion, and that's just senseless. The year before that, Dr. Latipo joined a controversial group of doctors as they gathered outside the Supreme Court to tell the American public they definitely didn't need social distancing or masks to stay safe. Most recently, Dr. Latipo was accused of personally altering data in a report about health risks for young men associated with the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, the anti-vax fear-mongering here may be good politics for DeSantis and his team, but it is not exactly attracting the stars of the public health world to the state of Florida. NBC News is exclusively reporting today that two of the top public health officials in the DeSantis administration, the ones who are responsible for tracking and preventing the spread of communicable diseases like malaria, they left their positions in recent months, and those positions remain vacant. NBC reports that the open positions include the head of the Florida Health Department's Bureau of Epidemiology, which oversees many of the state's core public health functions. A second key post, the administrator of the Bureau's Surveillance Division, has been vacant since March. We don't yet know why these officials left their positions, but some experts believe that Florida is having a hard time replacing them because Governor DeSantis and Dr. Latipo have so politicized public health. Meanwhile, the governor himself is very, spending very little time in Florida these days. Instead, he has been campaigning all over the country, including this past Fourth of July weekend, when Governor DeSantis was literally caught in the rain as he marched in an Independence Day parade in New Hampshire. That is New Hampshire, New Hampshire, not New Hampshire, Florida, where there is not currently a resurgence of malaria, at least as far as we know. DeSantis is trailing Donald Trump in national polls by roughly 30 percentage points, a gap that has widened significantly since DeSantis began actually meeting voters. Back in DeSantis' camp, the talking point is that polls will begin to lean his way later on once he is done touring the country. At least that's what they told the New York Times. Brian Griffin, a spokesman for the DeSantis campaign, said, this campaign is a marathon, not a sprint. We will be victorious. Now, okay, a lot can happen with enough time, including, by the way, the reemergence of malaria in Florida after two decades. But a DeSantis nomination at this point seems like kind of a long shot, at least right now. We will have more on that ahead with the great Claire McCaskill. I think, you know, identifying uh, Donald Trump as really being a pioneer in injecting gender ideology into the mainstream where he was having men compete against women in his beauty pageants. I think that's totally fair game. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis attempting to to defend what we will generously call a bizarre ad shared by his campaign this week. The video, released on the last day of Pride Month, tries to paint Donald Trump as a woke ally of the LGBTQ community. It also hypes Ron DeSantis' efforts to restrict LGBTQ rights in between supercuts of shirtless men and the serial killer from American Psycho all of it set to a club soundtrack. The ad has not helped Governor DeSantis. Even the log cabin Republicans accused him of venturing into homophobic territory. 
And it has given rise to a number of questions about the DeSantis campaign and its strategy. Namely, what is it? Because it is starting to seem like the more people hear from Governor Ron DeSantis, the less they like him. Republican primary polling averages show DeSantis trailing Trump by more than 30 percent, a gap that has only widened as voters continue to meet DeSantis on the campaign trail. Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator of Missouri. Claire, thanks for joining me. There's literally no one I'd rather hear from in terms of assessing that ad that was shared by the DeSantis campaign. What do you make of it? And what does it tell you about what the campaign thinks of Republican primary voters? Well, the interesting thing here is he has to have and his team has to have some theory by which he takes votes from Donald Trump. And he thinks the way to do that is to out-Trump Trump, Trump. Uh, go even further, spew more hate and bigoted language. Um, and I got to tell you, the biggest problem that DeSantis has is in order to be a con man, you have to have showmanship. <laughs> now, we all know that Donald Trump is a con man. He is a huckster. He is somebody who thinks it's all about self-promotion and marketing and nothing about substance or policy. Ron DeSantis is no showman. He doesn't have the personality to be a showman. He is awkward. You know, frankly, he has the personality of kind of a dead frog. It, it is really not a guy that is going to light up a room or light up a hall or light up a rally with his showmanship. So how does he get votes away from Trump? I, I got news for him. He's not. The people that are with Trump now are not going anywhere. They're certainly not going to abandon him for somebody who is just kind of a wannabe of Donald Trump. Um, you know, and here's the other. Go ahead, Alex. I was go just going to say, I think you first of all, apologies to dead frogs everywhere. Um, and secondly, you know, it seems like what DeSantis cannot accomplish in terms of charm or wit or comedy or anything approaching warmth. He tries to make up with cruelty and meanness. It's like he's overcompensating for a lack of personality and per personable skills by just trying to be the meanest, most aggressive you know, shirtless warrior out there. I mean, not that he's shirtless, but the people in his ads are shirtless. And to me, that seems like such a bizarre calculation because it does miss something that is central to Trump, which is as abhorrent as a lot of Trump's policies may be, as much as he is a huckster, he is also a very talented and magnetic campaigner. And DeSantis seems to have completely shortchanged that part of you know, the Trump strategy, which is letting Trump be Trump may be repulsive to many people, but he also has a certain amount of basic magnetism for the people that love Donald Trump. Yeah, and I think um, DeSantis has looked in the mirror and looked around a very close circle of people. And what he sees reflected is that he is wonderful, that he won Florida by a big margin. Therefore, he's the guy and he's not the guy. And the interesting thing here, Alex, is that the hard thing about running for president is you have got to appeal to your base in a primary season in order to gain the nomination. But you have to do it in a way where you do not alienate independent voters 
or voters of the other party that maybe are not comfortable with their nominee. Ron DeSantis is digging a hole he can't get out of because with every time he spews hate, every time he uses the heavy hand of government to take freedoms away from the LGBTQ community or accuses public school teachers of being groomers and pedophiles, he is losing votes that are independents and Republicans who don't like Trump. So there's no strategy here for victory for him to ever be president of the United States. Well, if you're if you I'm starting to smell a whiff of the Jeb Bush around Ron DeSantis's campaign, which is as someone who is a presumed front runner who does not end up being a front runner at all, despite all the attention and the resources. But I do wonder, because Trump is in many ways so unpalatable because there is a sense, though yet unproven, that Republicans would be willing to switch coffees. Do you think donors hang with DeSantis longer than they normally would in a in a traditional campaign cycle with someone who isn't necessarily as as filled with kryptonite as Donald Trump appears to be? Well, I think you've hit on a really important point. The jury is out whether Ron DeSantis can raise the kind of money he's going to need to raise. Will he get the grassroots donations that, in fact, is Donald Trump's lifeline? Donald Trump has never really had the big donors uh, coming in guns blazing for him. But Ron DeSantis has had some big donors. But question is, are they going to stick with him as he continues to fumble uh, everything he tries to do in this campaign? And what are these debates going to look like? Chris, if, if Trump doesn't debate, Chris Christie is going to tear DeSantis up. If Trump does debate, both Chris Christie and Trump are going to tear DeSantis up. And guess who else is going to tear him up? He's number two. Number three, four, five, six, seven, and eight are going to tear him up because they need to try to get up ahead of DeSantis to be the next alternative to Donald Trump. So he is in a terrible position right now, both in terms of his ability to raise money and frankly, the fact that he's going to be a target of everybody running for president except him. Yeah. If you're Chris Christie or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, what is your op- like? Where do you go right now, Claire, seeing the weakness of Ron DeSantis? I think if they're smart, they're going to talk about the issues that people care about. And they're also going to talk about that you should never run for president on a platform that is foundational with hate that is foundational with dividing people, with his, you know, Alex, everybody in America has someone they love that is gay or lesbian. You know, it's, this is not, you know, 30, 40 years ago when people were not, um, you know, so many people were afraid to come out and be honest with the world about their sexuality. Not anymore. And it is mainstream now. And this country is not going back. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I don't care what Clarence Thomas says. And I sure as hell don't care what Ron DeSantis says. This is not going to work. And I actually think that if the other candidates talk about uniting people around the traditional values of the Republican Party, that's their best shot. It may not be a good one because Trump has got them all under a spell. Hot tip, don't run on hate. Straight from someone who knows politics, Claire McCaskill, it is always a delight to see you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have one more story for you tonight. The right-wing conspiracy machine is fired up over a bag of cocaine found at the White House last weekend, but that is not the only coke to find itself at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. 
We are going to get into a brief history of presidential drugs right after the break. The right wing is having an absolute field day after a baggie of white powder, which a lab test confirmed was cocaine, was found in the White House on Sunday. Now, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that President Joe Biden or his son Hunter have anything to do with this. The president and his family were at Camp David over the holiday weekend when a Secret Service official says officers discovered the suspicious powder during a routine patrol of White House premises. Now, White House officials say that the bag of powder was found in a highly trafficked area. VIPs go through there, but so do escorted visitors and tourists, as well as staff, military and operations employees. And while officials have low expectations that they can identify who left this cocaine, investigators expect to wrap up their forensic work by Monday. But if you did not know it already, there is a fascinating and storied history of drugs and other illicit substances found in or near the seat of power right here in the U.S. And I have exactly the perfect person to talk about this with. Joining us now is Lindsay Chervinsky, presidential historian and a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Lindsay, thank you so much for making the time. I just, this is not the first time that cocaine may have been found in the White House. Can you talk a little about about the era of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and what was happening then? Absolutely. So cocaine used to be used in a number of medications because it has the effect of restricting blood vessels. So for example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a lot of sinus problems. And some reports suggest that one of the medicines doctors recommended was a diluted cocaine substance that would then be swabbed on the inside of each nostril to try and help increase oxygen flow and reduce any blockages that he may or may not have had. What about, I mean, back in the day, opium and cocaine were used in a lot of um, pharmacies, for lack of a better word. They were used as the basis for a lot of medicine. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what was happening in the 18th and 19th centuries? Absolutely. Well, as you said, so opium was a common ingredient in a lot of different medications. And one of the most frequent uses was called laudanum. And this was something that was regularly prescribed for pain medication, for pain tolerance if someone was ill or had trouble sleeping. So, for example, we know that two first ladies in the 19th century died while their husbands were in the White House, Letitia Tyler and Caroline Harrison. We don't know exactly what they were prescribed, but laudanum was so common at the time that it's hard to imagine that that wasn't one of the things that was suggested. Uh, Similarly, one of my favorite colorful stories occurred in 1805 when the first and only impeachment proceedings of a Supreme Court justice took place. And John Randolph was in charge of the prosecution of that case. And he had such bad stomach issues that his doctor prescribed him opium-laced wine. And he was in so much pain that he basically was taking a sip of this concoction in between every single sentence. And by the end of the trial, he could barely stand and was slurring his words because he had taken so much of this, what they thought of then as medication. So just goes to show how much our understanding of these things have changed. Yeah, we still have the impeachment proceedings, but we don't have the opium-laced wine. Was it a big deal that he was taking opium-laced wine at the time? Or was that sort of like, oh, there he goes again with that opium-laced wine? Well, it wasn't so much a big deal that he was taking the wine 
rather, I think the quantity of it was what people noted and the effect on him because either he hadn't eaten much or he hadn't been sleeping well. And so everyone was noticing that he was not his best self for this particular day in the Senate chambers. It's not so much the opium in your wine. It's just how much of it you're drinking. Okay. I am very glad we had this history lesson. <laughs> Lindsay Trevinsky, thank you for your time and your wisdom tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is our show for this evening. We'll see you again tomorrow. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD.